The Red Light District by Robert P. Fitton. Episode 12, Polanski lands at Camp David. I want to know why that man jettisoned the suit. Richard screamed as he paced the length of the control room. He threw his hands up. There's no excuse for this, John. No excuse at all. I know that we should have brought him back here with no problem. Face it, Paul. He's dead. He's been dead for almost a hundred years, said Hudson as he sat behind the console. Yes, he must have died right away, or he must have lived in complete isolation, because no history has been changed. Everything is the same, said Richards as he closed his eyes to think. But why did he get out of the suit? A number of things, Paul. Fear? Maybe he couldn't breathe. It could be one of a hundred reasons, argued Hudson. You're right, John, you're right. We must begin again. The mission will be started once again. We'll get somebody else. I would advise very much against it right now until we find the cause for the failure of this mission. Let us try and find the malfunction first, Doctor. Malfunction? We don't know there was a malfunction. And if someone else doesn't survive, we'll keep trying. I will not have my efforts halted. A very poor decision. Dr. Richards, one of the techs interrupted on a speaker from below. I told you we were not to be disturbed. I beg your pardon, doctor, but we do know why the flight failed, said Richards as he shut off the switch. Come on, John, let's straighten this out. No, I think I'll stay up here, doctor said Hudson as he was sure they had discovered his device. You will come with me, John, and you will come with me now, said Richards as the veins bulged from his neck. Hudson reluctantly followed him into the field and prepared himself for the worst. As they entered the main complex, two security guards blocked their path. What is this? demanded Richards as they drew their weapons. One of the techs walked briefly over to Richards with Dr. Hudson's message in his hand. Hudson's eyes opened wide in disbelief. It was incomprehensible that Polanski would have left that note in the pouch. He wondered if Polanski was somehow punishing him for his work on the project. As the tech handed the note to Richards, the doctor read the outer envelope with a confused look on his face. He opened the envelope and then unfolded the white paper. His perplexed face was transformed into a tormenting rage. He hurled the message to the carpet and walked over to Hudson. He gritted his large white teeth. Hudson remained calm as Richard's volcanic temper exploded. You miserable traitor! Do you realize what you have done? I have probably saved the world from your eternal persecution and suffering. That's what I've done. You are a senile old fool. You haven't saved the world. You've ruined the world. You've ruined it, said Richards as he huffed. But you won't get away with it. I'll call Peabody and the rest of them and he'll have your dear protege, Polanski, strung up by morning. Now tell me where he is. You will tell me, shouted Richards as he grabbed Hudson by the lapels. Where? Downtown Washington? In Redstone? Where? Damn it, where? I have absolutely no comment, said Hudson as he stayed serene while the mighty Richards shook him violently. Hudson felt a certain satisfaction that Richards got angrier as he remained silent. Finally, Richards could take no more of the unusual silence. He turned and shouted, How? 
How could you do this to our country? How could you do this to me? He pushed Hudson over to the entrance to the field, which was still open. Then he stepped back and grabbed the revolver from one of his security guards. Quickly, he stuck the gun into Hudson's ribs so that it hurt. Then he pushed him all the way to the field. Go ahead, Paul, kill me. The project is finished and so are you. I can die with the dignity of that thought, he said clearly as they started to move through the field. Richards raised his brow and opened his mouth like an attacking tiger as he snapped the trigger of the gun several times. Hudson collapsed. He was half conscious as blood flowed swiftly from his abdomen and then Richards and the entire field faded from view. Richard sat alone in front of a wallboard and dialed the white telephone on his wall. He sat back in his black chair as he listened to the line ring. Peabody, said the voice on the other end. Mr. Director, this is Dr. Richards. Richards, we've been trying to get through to that place since yesterday afternoon. Your mission was a failure, wasn't it? Yes, we have failed. No, not again. Is Polanski dead? Worse. Much worse. Somehow Hudson has sabotaged the flight. Polanski was sent along a finite timeline to... to... To what? To contact... to contact the president about the project. Don't you realize the implications of this? Well, where did he go? Where? Hudson did not say. Well, put Dr. Hudson on the line. I can't. Why not? The traitor is dead. I personally shot him myself. You're mad. You're a damn fool. A damn fool. You never should have shot him. Your insane temper is going to get us all killed. I will have agents combing the area for Polanski at once. You will begin Operation Dunkirk and get the hell out of there. If anything breaks, we can all squirm out of it. Richard slammed down the receiver. Stupid fool! Every one of them stupid fools, he shouted as the call seemed to make his mind snap. Frampton! Frampton's voice came over the speaker. Yes, doctor. Where are you? Console 14. I was trying to ascertain why Polanski was... Never mind that, said Richards as he looked through the glass to Frampton standing in front of the console below. Frampton looked upward to the raging man behind the glass. You will make preparations for the red sequence, he said as he countermanded Director Peabody's order. Yes, Doctor, at once. Richards looked down as all the texts began to scatter from their consoles and he smiled. I will show them. I will make fools out of all of them. Peabody placed a call a few hours later to General McNally. Hello, Tom, this is Peabody. Tom, I've been trying to reason this whole Polanski thing out. We've overlooked the distinct possibility that he's right under our noses. I'm referring to the President's trip to Camp David. Oh yes, of course. That would be the logical place. The perfect place. Good job. The Director, can you talk the President out of the trip to Camp David? Negative. I don't want to arouse any suspicions. Besides, we'll have a full day to find Polanski. I know, I know that. I talked to Richards no more than 20 minutes ago, and he's convinced that Polanski is in the present, but he couldn't back it up. For now, I'm going to assume that Polanski is there at Camp David. 
Perhaps we should send some people out there to Arizona. I would concentrate on the Polanski problem. That's the immediate threat. Once we've taken care of him, we can replace Richards with somebody more stable. I agree. Can you get men out to Camp David, Tom? We'll need a pretext. How about an attempt on the president's life? You'll have them, Tom. I'll place a call to the president and express my concern about the attempt. I'll CC you on the background of the assassination attempt. I recommend most vigorously the area be combed by your troops. Another point. Let's keep the description of Polanski, but we might want to give him an alias. Second point. We shouldn't slacken our efforts to find Polanski around the White House or the metro area. If we're wrong about this Camp David thing, I don't want him to surface in the capital area. Well, that would be most disquieting. I'll place the call, Tom. Please stand by. Will do, Mr. Director. I'll be right here. It was very late at night when the President of the United States relaxed on a sofa at the White House. He was dressed in a pullover sweater and gray slacks as he stretched out after another demanding 18-hour day. He looked older than his years, and he knew it prematurely white, and he needed bifocals to read the book he had in the dim light. Mr. President, excuse me, said a Secret Service agent as he stepped in the doorway. Yes, what is it, Don? Mr. President, you have an urgent call from Director Peabody. Thank you, Don, he said as he walked in his slippers toward the door and into the hallway. The agent handed the receiver to him. Yes, Mr. Director, what can I do for you? Now, Mr. President, I've, uh, I'll come right to the point. I want you to postpone your trip to Camp David. Well, that's silly, said the President. We have important strategy sessions scheduled. Well, I'm sorry to say, sir, that we have information there's an assassin poisoned ready somewhere around Camp David. The President rolled his eyes and exhaled. So what else is new? I've lived with that for seven years. We've had threats before. I'm sure you fellows over there can take care of the problem. If that's what you wish, sir, I suggest a sweep in the area by Army troops. Just to be sure, Tom McNally can help us out with that. Very good. You do that, Mr. Director. Make it quick and secret. Keep me informed. Good night. He handed the telephone back to the agent, who placed it on the hook. Have your boss call, Director Peabody. Apparently there's some threat on my life at Camp David. As you know, Don, threats on my life are a dime a dozen. Peabody waited until Tom McNally came on the line. Yes, we have the authority, Tom. He told me. Was he at all suspicious? Not at all. He just took it as one in a long line of threats. I thought he might become unglued and cancel the trip. Regardless, we've got the okay, so when do you suggest we start the sweep? In a few hours? No. Yes, it's snowing here right now, said the director as he looked out the window. Right. Well, it's going to clear by morning. It will start as soon as it clears. I'll call Langley and inform Monty of our plan. Let's pray that we get Polanski and we can set our sights on Arizona. Keep me posted, Tom. Right. Very good. Good night, Mr. Director. It was past 8 o'clock in the morning when McNally gave the order to his force over 200 men to begin a systematic sweep of the area. The cloudless and moderately cold temperature of the night had yielded to brilliant blue sky and stormy breath for the soldiers. 
They marched across the freshly fallen snow in their green combat uniforms with orange vests and their weapons drawn. Surprisingly, Polanski had slept well in his makeshift igloo. The air was stuffy and the floor was cold and hard, and he was suffering from exhaustion. Polanski opened his tired eyes in the darkness. He moved his arms and legs. It seemed as though every muscle in his body ached with the pain of fatigue. He crawled on his belly to the small air hole at the entrance and breathed the fresh air. In the distance, he could see the mountains covered with glaring snow, and he heard faint rumbling on the ground. At first, he thought he was experiencing an earthquake. Then he thought the noise could be a symptom of his exhaustion and hunger. As the sound became louder, he grew fearful because he could not figure out what was causing the vibration. Clancy heard the sergeant call out the cadence as the army men marched toward the rocky ledge. Kalinsky now realized they must be looking for him. He started to cough because of the thick buildup, carbon dioxide. He wanted to rush into the clean, fresh air, but he had to remain in hiding. Again, he crawled on his belly toward the opening and sucked in the air. He turned his ear to the outside and distinctly heard clear voices and felt the thumping of the ground. Halt! shouted the general as he ran up to the advancing column which had stopped. Status, Lieutenant. No sign of him, he replied as Polanski's heart pounded. Very good. We'll advance these lines down the hill and then turn south for a complete sweep of the sector. Yes, sir. Sir, Director Peabody's been waiting on the line. Let him wait like everyone else. Plansky now knew they were out to get him. Maybe even the president wanted him dead. They would probably shoot him on the spot, audit the man in charge. All right, shouted the lieutenant through an amplified megaphone. Polanski waited for them to spot the roof of the igloo or come crashing through. To his great relief and astonishment, the lieutenant spoke again. Round the rock, men, he said through the megaphone. They passed around the snow-covered shelter. Then they were looking toward the mountains. Polanski peered out the opening was astounded by their numbers. In his mind, he could see the barrel of one of the rifles being stuck in the igloo in a volley of shots fired into the darkness. He could, in his present state of mind, almost feel the imagined bullets pierce his body. His violent fantasy was cut short. Richard, he said as his voice came over the radio speaker and Polanski raised his eyebrows. Has been bothering me all morning, Tom. He's on the other line right now. You tell him to continue his instructions. I don't see any sign of Polanski, and if he is here, I don't think he could survive in this cold anyways. Wants to talk to you, Tom. I don't want to talk to that son of a bitch. Richard's here, said the unmistakable voice, causing Polanski to grow fearful. Well, doctor, I haven't seen any sign of Polanski, and if we do, you'll be informed immediately. Well, you must find him, said Richards. Let me remind you that we probably wouldn't be out there if you hadn't killed John Hudson. Plansky's facial muscles grew taut and his eyes watered. He fell back on the hardened surface. He shook his head and banged his hand on the floor of the igloo. Hudson's words rolled over his tongue. The future of the world is at stake. Well, I'm sorry you feel that way, General, snapped Richards. Tom? Yes, Mr. Director. Call me when you've completed a search of all sectors. Richards sounded pretty upset. I don't think he'll be calling us for a while. Neither do I. I'll get back to you in a few hours. Very good. Plansky stayed in the igloo all day, 
eating the remaining acorns he had stuffed in his pocket. He kept his face next to the opening. As the sun set, the temperature dropped even lower, and he crawled out of the shelter into the cold. He had even lost his appetite now, and all that occupied his mind was stopping the president's helicopter the next morning. He stood upright and shivered as he looked up at the moon, its glimmering light heightened the snow-covered land. As he rubbed his arms against his ribs, he peered at the detail of the lunar surface, its infinitesimally small craters and shaded plains, stark in the darkened sky. What am I going to do? He shouted into the night as if he were directing his comments at the moon itself. His insulated suit kept him alive, but his hands were becoming numb. He could feel the skin tighten and a tingling sensation on his bearded face. His nose was stiff and running. He wiped it on his sleeve. I'm hungry! He looked up at the moon again like it was a long-lost friend. At least I have some light. Thank you! He mumbled as if he were drunk. Some light by the light of the silvery moon. He wandered over to the tall trees and scraped some snow for more acorns. Soon he staggered back to the igloo. This tastes terrible, he said as he openly talked to himself. In a strange way, it might help him, for falling asleep would allow the president to land without Plansky giving him instructions. General McNally was furious. His troops had covered every inch of the grounds of Camp David, and even the helicopters hadn't found a trace of Polanski. Peabody was convinced that Polanski was still alive, but just not at Camp David. It was his opinion that Polanski had been thrown into the Washington area, and they really had nothing to worry about. McNally's compressed face seemed to tighten even more as he listened to the voice of the director of the FBI. Our main concern is getting out to Redstone and double-checking on the progress of Operation Dunkirk. I don't trust Richards at all now, especially with Hudson dead. Why continue with Dunkirk if Polanski is no worry to us? That would be my question, Mr. Director, he said as he inhaled the fumes of his cigar. Operation Dunkirk doesn't require many hours of work. Why don't we just make sure we cover ourselves until the crisis is passed? My previous fears were that Polanski would surface now, somehow contact the president. I don't think that's going to happen, but I do think he'll make his move sometime. So when I say we have nothing to worry about, I'm referring to our immediate actions. Right, right, I agree. What do you want to do about Arizona? You and I will fly back to Arizona on either tomorrow or Sunday. We'll have a cover and then we'll get back once we know to our own satisfaction that everything is proceeded on schedule. One thing that's bothering me, Tom. What's that, Mr. Director? I can't understand why John Hudson would all of a sudden go berserk and send Polanski to the president with such a message. It all boils down to the fact that the more I hear about the esteemed Dr. Richards, the more I think something is a muck out there. All the more reason to get out there. Yeah, you're right, Tom. I'm just pray nothing else has happened out there. You have a good night. I'll call you in the morning. We'll have a cover developed by then. Very good. Good night, Mr. Director said McNally as he set down the telephone, snuffed out a cigar in the ashtray on his desk. I'm keeping my fingers crossed on this one. Join us next time for another exciting episode of The Red Light District by Robert P. Fitton. Presented by Fitton Theater of the Words. <laughs>